Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his second Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus. And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. Hey, good morning, everyone. It is Thursday morning, and it's about 11.03. I'm three minutes late to my own Bible study. Sorry about that, but having some last-minute glitches on trying to get the audio portion started so that I can record the audio for the podcast soundtrack. We've had several issues with different audio players, and I've tried different audio players and uh, just uh, got one up and running real quick there, so sorry we're a little bit late. But thank you for joining today, Judy and Debbie. I see you there. Thank you for joining in today. And uh, it is uh, it's Thursday. That means Bible Study Live at 11 o'clock. That's been our schedule for this whole COVID-19 quarantine period, and we're just continuing on and this morning, we're going to be talking about this, one of my favorite biblical prayers, and that's called the Song of Simeon. It's a beautiful prayer, and we'll get to it in just a few minutes, but I want you to take a minute to make sure you're all set. Do you have your Bible with you? Do you have a cup of coffee with you? Or for those of you that don't drink coffee, you know, tea or soda, whatever, I'm doing the uh, classic Starbucks mug today, but it's not Starbucks coffee because I didn't have any Starbucks decaf on hand. So today I'm drinking the uh, the last bit, I'm almost out, of my uh, Southern Pecan from the Spice Merchant, or as they say in Texas, a Southern Pecan. But it's really good, and it's great out of this little classic Starbucks mug. I was kind of wishing I had that bold, dark roast Starbucks this morning, but didn't have it. So whatever you have, go get you a cup, and let's get ready to get started Uh, This morning, I've been thinking about this scripture a lot, knowing that we would get to it this week. And it's one of those scriptures that is short but powerful. Okay, packed with meaning. The Song of Simeon is only a a few verses long. Actually, the scripture we're going to look at, we're going to look at the end of chapter 2. So we're actually going to look at like 30 verses this morning. I don't know if we'll get all of that covered or not. You said never know how quickly I'll be able to work through that because I don't like to rush. But the highlight of what we're going to look at this morning is the Song of Simeon. So take a moment to gather your prayer. If you have your prayer before the study of Scripture, I hope you do. If you don't, get it right off of my Facebook page there in the under photos. <clears throat> and then make sure you're open to Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 22 today. So let's, uh, let's open our hearts to the Lord in prayer before we study. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thinking about that line in that prayer that says, the light of our souls and bodies. Hi, Pastor Cecil of Beverly. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, you know, we do have a lot of people that join in each week on this Bible study, and some of you are pastors. I noticed Pastor Cecil Brown, a good friend of mine, and, and I want to just, for those who join in on this Bible study, maybe who 
are uh, maybe not even from a church or don't have a church to go to. Uh, you know, Pastor Cecil pastors the West Side Church of the Nazarene, a great church, and I know he would be loved to have you visit uh, when things open up. I don't know. So if you're a pastor and you listen in on this call, feel free to type in a response and let us know uh, if you have any services gathering back together yet or if you know when you do. And people that are on the, the video will, or watch the video later will be able to see. We really want to be about lifting up the body of Christ in this Bible study. I know that uh, there are several who are starting to meet smaller churches. West Side's a lot bigger church, so they may not be able to. But uh, thank you for joining in. As we look at this prayer this morning, the prayer before the study of Scripture, when I read that line that says, For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, that just jumped off the page at me because that is part of the heart of what the Song of Simeon is about. This idea that that the Lord is the light of our souls and bodies. So I'll explain a little further. Let's go to the text. Let's look this morning at Luke chapter 2. Let's begin in verse, uh, it's a long passage. Let's begin at verse uh, 22. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said of the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's the beginning of the part. We actually studied that last week. I wanted you to feel it in one big sweep here. Now in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And inspired by the Spirit, he came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast provided, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to thy people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after, seven years from her virginity, and as a widow till she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she gave thanks to God and spoke of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and, in favor, and the favor of God was upon him. Now there's just a little bit more to this chapter, so let's go ahead and read it. Verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the company, they went on a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinfolk and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him there, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, 
Son, why have you treated us so? Behold your father, and I have been looking for you anxiously. And he said to them, How is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand that saying which he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now with that, chapter 2 comes to a close. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's a long passage, and it's a lot to get through, but I wanted you to feel the sweep of it all. I see uh, Pam is here, and Krista, good to have you here uh, with us this morning. Uh, And I probably missed a couple while I was reading. Thank you all for joining us, and thank you to everyone who's going to listen to this later on. Excuse me, let me take a sip of coffee. Everyone who will watch this later on on the video or listen on the podcast, it's, it's it's an incredible honor to have you join me in study of God's Word. I wanted you to feel the sweeping breath of what's happening in this scripture. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph have come back, as we talked about last week, for the purification ceremony that is for Mary after having given childbirth 40 days after the birth of the child. Remember, they had previously gone up to the temple eight days after for the naming uh, ceremony of Jesus, the circumcision. And in that process, they probably are staying in Bethlehem because they're close. They want to be close to the temple for all that they have to do. Hi, Sylvia. Hey, Jacob. Thanks for joining this morning. And so they're near the temple, and 40 days later, they come back. Now, you'll notice the last verse towards the very end of what I read, Luke records that they, after this was over, they went back to Galilee. And you know the story of Jesus. That's not exactly chronologically correct, because we know that from Bethlehem, they, Matthew tells us they went to Egypt because of the threat of uh, killing all of the babies by King Herod. Luke doesn't make a mistake. Luke's, Luke's writing the gospel story from a different point, and he's not trying to tell the story exactly like Matthew did. He's bringing in different points of view. Hi, John. Good. Thank you for joining us. And so he doesn't forget. He just simply goes on with the story that, yes, they while they went to Egypt, they end up back rejoining their lives in Galilee. And that's where Jesus grows up. And then he brings us in 12 years later when Jesus is 12 years old to kind of recap the story bookends of he begins with the, the Annunciation and then the birth and then, of course, the circumcision and Jesus being subject to the law with Mary and Joseph and performing the law perfectly in that sense, and then kind of bookends it with Jesus as a 12-year-old boy, which is a very important age in Jewish uh, traditional custom. 12 uh, is getting to that point where at at 13, that bar mitzvah age, that bar mitzvah when, when a young Jewish man becomes, a young Jewish boy becomes a man. So And that's all that we have of the childhood of Jesus right there in these verses. If we look at the Gospel of Matthew and and this Gospel through his age 12, that's really all we have. But we have some very important stuff there, so let's talk about it. Let's go back to the beginning of what we read, starting with verse 25, and let's think through. Let's think through the song of Simeon. Who is Simeon, by the way? The text doesn't tell us exactly who he is or what his role is. It tells us he's a very old man. And it tells us that he's very respectful. It tells us that he is very righteous and devout. And we know that because of what Luke adds. Luke adds a very important detail. It says that he's been looking for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? Here is, here's a, a man. Remember, we've been about 400 years since the voice of the prophets had ended. The life of the people of Israel have been a life that has basically been prisoners to various different foreign uh, governments. And now, for a long time, for all of their life, it's been the Roman Empire. And this tells us that Simeon, he remembers who Israel is as God's chosen people. He remembers that that God wants to, the promises that God made to bring a Messiah, 
the text here says that he was looking for, it was revealed to him, in verse 26, it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And we know the Greek, that word Christ means the anointed one. So we would compare that to the title of Messiah, the great savior of the people of Israel. And Simeon was living his whole life. It tells us he was righteous, he was devout, and he was looking for that consolation. Now, it doesn't tell us that he was a priest, although he well might have been. But it does tell us that he lived in Jerusalem. And as righteous and devout as he is, he probably went to the temple every day. But when you think about all the people that are going in and out of the temple, I mean, it's the center of life in Jerusalem. Um, it would have been easy for Simeon to miss Jesus coming for this reception, this, this uh, uh, presentation to the Lord, the, the baby Jesus. And in that process, we know that all of these events are divinely guided by the Holy Spirit. There was no way Simeon would miss them. He, he was there because the Holy Spirit had guided him. This is the day. This is the day that he's going to see the Messiah. He doesn't know it. He gets up every day with that longing, that anticipation of waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. He doesn't know what it's going to look like when he gets there. He doesn't know that he's going to see a baby born. He doesn't know how the Messiah is going to come. Uh, but by the Holy Spirit, when he's in the temple and he sees Mary and Joseph and Jesus, he knows that he is in the presence of the Messiah, that he's in the presence of God Almighty. And his heart, he goes up and he takes the baby out of Mary's arms. I, I love that. I mean, what an incredible picture of this beautiful holy man coming up to her. Text doesn't tell us he's the one that has to perform the ceremony. We can infer that maybe, but it doesn't tell us that. And hi, Jerry. Good to see you today. And Matthew, thanks for joining in. It's good having you on the Bible study today. But, but Simeon goes up and, and he just takes the baby Jesus in his arms. And he holds him close in his bosom and his heart begins to sing. Now, I want to analyze with you this morning this prayer, this incredible prayer, this song. This is the third uh, great hymn that we find in these two chapters uh, of the Song of Simeon. And it's just a few verses long. Let's analyze it together this morning. Now, I read it to you from the RSV that was in the ancient Christian commentary. But I want to read it to you from the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican Episcopal Prayer Book, if you will. And it, this Song of Simeon is recorded as a part of the service of Compline. C-O-M-P-L-I-N-E, Compline. And that means it's a service for the end of the day. It's the last prayer service of the day just before you go to bed at night. So you could call it night prayer. Sometimes it's called night prayer. It's not very long. It has It's composed mostly of quoting scriptures and uh, especially psalms, particular psalms. But when you get to the very end, here is the song of Simeon. Lord, you now have set your servant free to go in peace as you have promised. For these eyes of mine have seen the Savior, whom you have prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten the nations and the glory of your people Israel. So, three stanzas, okay? That's all the longer the Song of Simeon is. And let's, let's take each one of those stanzas apart here, if you will. Uh, first, Simeon says, Lord, now you can set me free. You in fact, he says, now you have set me free. What does he mean by that? Why, why, what has he been bound in? Was he... He's a free man living in Jerusalem, going to the temple every day, living his righteous and devout life. But he knows he was prisoner. He knows he represents, Simeon represents all of humanity in this song. We're all prisoners until we're set free by Jesus Christ. Set free from the bondage of sin. Set free to live life in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Something God's people had never been able to do. They were always living, in, in one sense, in bondage to the law. 
The law was beautiful and holy, but they were bound to it, and they could not keep it. And they lived with that sense of, well, I guess you could call it a sense of failure, knowing that there was, they, no matter how hard they tried, they just couldn't keep the law perfectly. Because it's not possible. Only Jesus did keep the law perfectly. The Mosaic law I'm talking about. And so Simeon feels the bondage of humanity, the prison of life without a savior. And he knows that when he, he's been promised by God, he's going to see the savior. And so he knows when he sees this child, the Holy Spirit says, this is the one. Lord, you now have set your servant free to go in peace as you have promised. I want to, I want to think about that just a little bit. Um, I think the classic words are beautiful when it says, uh, it says, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to your word. Simeon acknowledges he's the servant of the Lord. He acknowledges that he's not had peace, but now he knows he can have peace. He can depart. And I think he means not only to depart the temple, he's, a, he's an old man. I think he knows now he can die. God has been faithful. God has promised him the opportunity to see salvation, to hold Jesus in his arms, and to prophesy. So Simeon's a very special man. I think we want to think about those Simeons. It's, all, it's another way of saying the name Simon. We have, of course, Simon Peter as one of the 12 apostles. And so the first Simon, if you will, who receives Christ is this old Simeon who's from the old covenant who's connecting the old and the new covenants together and prophesying their fulfillment. And then, of course, we see he prophesies about Jesus himself. He says, for my eyes have seen the Savior. He's prophesying this is the Savior. And he says, whom you, Lord, have prepared for all the world to see. He, he says here, uh, let's look at it in these words, a light for revelation to the Gentiles a light for revelation to the Gentiles. You've prepared this for the whole presence of all, in the, in the presence of all peoples. Jesus was born in the middle of the Roman Empire for all the world to be able to see. He was brought into the temple. He wasn't hidden away for 30 years. Uh, he, would, he grew up, he had a public life. He came to the temple. Uh, in accordance with the law, and then we'll see him even at 12 years old. We know that Jesus came to the temple all his life. He lived a very public life. People knew who he was. People would even later say, isn't that Joseph and Mary's son? You know, the carpenter? Who is he? So he wasn't hidden away. He was for all the peoples to see. And I think we can circle that word all. We know that Christ is the Savior of all humanity. Now, there's a point I want to make here that I feel very strongly about. We are living in, right now, and you know, we are living in some of the most difficult times of my lifetime. I grew up as a kid in the 60s seeing uh, race riots in the late 60s, early 70s, race riots. But, um, you know, I, I've seen a few times where these kind of things have broken out. But to, but to happen in the midst of this, this, this horrible nightmare we're going through right now with eight and nine days of, of, of riots and looting and burning and just total anarchy, let's just call it what it is, it's anarchy in the streets of America, it, is, it, it's, it hurts, it's, it's depressing. And all of this is followed on three months almost of quarantine and not being together in, in the way that God created us to be together. We were not created for loneliness. We were not created to be alone. And so into this present day bondage, we, we are in bondage. People are asking every day, what is it that can stop this? Can the military stop this? Does the government need to send the military in? Can the National Guard stop this? Can the police departments get a hold? What is it that can stop this? There's only one thing that can stop what's happening in our nation today, and that is Jesus. He is the light of the world, and he is, as Simeon prophesied, peace. Jesus is peace. He's the king of peace. 
when Simeon held that baby to his bosom, he knew peace had come to the world. Remember, that's what the angels announced. Peace on earth and goodwill among men. And so as we look at our world today, I think we need the song of Simeon. We need to be able to sing the song of Simeon. Ask in your heart, can you sing the song of Simeon? Can you pray this song? So can you say to the Lord, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace because I've seen your salvation. I know your peace. Can you do that? If you can't do that, if you're still living in fear, wondering what tomorrow's gonna bring, are those riots gonna come to my neighborhood? You don't have peace. You need peace. There's nothing that can happen to us. If we are in Christ, there is nothing that can happen to us that God doesn't already know about. And God has a providential plan for this world, and that providential plan is greatly worked out and determined by our life in Christ and our prayers. I know that's a big statement. It's kind of confusing, but I've just got to say it, okay? What are you, are you sitting around worried, living in fear, or are you actively praying? Are you praying, God, deliver us? As, as it says in the Lord's Word, deliver us from evil. Deliver us, Lord, from every evil. There, there's a, the ancient liturgies, when they use the Lord's Prayer, and it's still that way in very liturgical churches, the Lord's Prayer is said by everyone, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then you get down to the part where he says, uh, deliver us from evil. And then it stops. But it doesn't really stop because the people then allow the, the, the leader, the pastor, the priest to go on. And he goes on and says, deliver us, Lord, from every evil and grant us peace in our day. In your mercy, keep us free from sin and protect us from all anxiety as we wait in joyful hope for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then all the people join back in and say, for the kingdom and the power and the glory is yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. Forever and ever and unto ages of ages. That is, that's kind of a liturgical way to use the Lord's Prayer. But it's the way it was written, actually. That's actually the way it's, it was written in the ancient uh, writings in the ancient church. That's why it stopped at, if you look at the text, uh, the most ancient manuscripts, it stops at deliver us from evil. The other part, that for thine is the kingdom, that's, that's a doxology that's added on. And doxologies are meant for prayer, for corporate prayer. Now, so I don't want to get too far off on that rabbit trail. There's a lot I could I could teach about, but um, Chip, thanks for joining in today. But I want to come back to the prayer. This is a prayer for our day. We need the Song of Simeon. I, I hope I'm speaking to people today that are living righteous, devout lives and that are searching for the consolation of God's people. We need consolation. And the consolation is right at our fingertips. The consolation, it's in the Word of God. The consolation is in the Spirit of God. We don't have to live in fear. So, as we look at this, let me go through, let me get back to my notes so I don't lose my place here. The song tells us that Jesus is for everyone. The song tells us that he is a light to the Gentiles. The song tells us that he is glory for the people of Israel. He is the crowning glory. He's finally arrived for Israel, but he's not just for Israel. He's for the Gentiles too. He's a light for everyone. And, and in that sense, we know that he is both because the truth is we are Israel. The church is Israel in the new covenant. The church has become Israel. We have been grafted in. The apostle Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. We have been grafted in to God's people. And of course, there are those, there's, that, there's always been a remnant of of the Hebrew people, the Jewish people that are faithful to God. And there's always been those that have rejected the Messiah. Anwar, thanks for joining us. Great having you in Bible study today. So look a little deeper with me. And Simon's done with his, Simeon is done with his prayer. And he turns to Mary and Joseph and he blesses them. What a beautiful experience that is. He blesses them and he, and he, and he says to them, it says he says to Mary. Now he's speaking directly to Mary, and I think this is poignant because we know that after the end of this chapter, we never hear from Joseph again. We, we never in any of the writings of Scripture 
here that Joseph lived on into Jesus' adult life. We, the best scholars, and I think the best scholarship is that Joseph was older, that he had been previously married and was widowed. That's where the brothers and sisters came from that are called brothers and sisters of Jesus, and that he was he was meant to protect Mary, and he was the perfect man to do that and to raise Jesus through those those growing years to manhood, if you will, which happens at about 12 or 13 in that day, age of 12 or 13, and to teach Jesus a trade as a carpenter, to be that stability in the home, but then he dies. He's not in the picture anymore. And, and so the, the words that Simeon has are to Mary, it says. Luke, Luke's very detailed in his points. So then he turns to Mary and he says, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel. The fall and rising. It's a prophecy. Many people are going to stumble. They're going to fall over the person of this child, Jesus Christ. And we know that's true. That happened. They ended up rejecting him. He is the cornerstone that was rejected, that the people stumbled over, if you will, prophecy fulfilled. But it says it's also for the rising of many in Israel. Because we know that everybody didn't fall. Everybody didn't fall over Jesus and fall away. Many, in fact, more, it swept the whole world, the message of Jesus, the gospel. So he was appointed. I mean, here is, Simeon is, is, is an old man, a devout Jew. He doesn't know the plan of God. He doesn't know the future any better than you and I do, except that the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. He is prophesying in the power of the Spirit, and these words have come true powerfully and beautifully. But then he's not through telling Mary. He says, after the rise and fall of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against. That's difficult. And for a sign that is spoken against. And I'm sure Mary didn't know what it was that day either. But we can look back on it now and we can know that that sign that was spoken against was the cross. There would be a sign that, would, that was spoken. The sign of the cross was a horrible sign. Nobody would embrace a cross. A cross was the most horrible form of, of uh, execution and punishment. But yet it was a sign. So it was a sign spoken against in the world, but it was the sign that Jesus was meant for. And he's telling Mary that. And then he says, uh, and that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Think about the poignancy of the sign. I, I had to think about this for a while. You know, if Jesus had just been killed, let's say he was just shot and murdered or whatever. They didn't have guns in those days, but, you know, he just executed somehow. There would have been no sign. Hey, Father Les is on with us this morning. Hi, Ellen. Thank you for, for joining us. Had Jesus just been executed, there would have been no sign. But Simeon tells us that he was appointed, there was a sign that was to be appointed, that many hearts, the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And that sign is the cross. That sign has endured through 2,000 years, and it will always endure until Christ returns again. The sign of the cross. The sign so special, the, the symbol and the sign so special that the earliest Christians began to mark their bodies with the sign of the cross. We, we read it in some of the writings of, of many of the early Christian writers. They, they said whenever we, whenever we would pray, whenever we would rise, whenever we would lie down, whenever we'd go in and out our doors, we would mark ourselves and our foreheads with the sign of the cross. Why? Because it's the sign that reveals the reality of Jesus' victory, Jesus conquering death, that, that death has been trampled down by his death. And it's for everyone. It, it's for many. The signs for many. So I want to say just a note about that sign. The cross is, is an enduring sign. Now, in verse 36, he, we see another uh, person enter the story, and it's the prophetess Anna. Now, Anna is an interesting person here. Excuse me just a moment. 
Go ahead and take a drink of yours. Uh, <coughs> my throat's getting a little raspy from this. Luke carefully brings in this other person, and I want to I want to look at that person, Anna. We've seen Simeon, the old, righteous, devout Jewish man who prophesies over the Lord Jesus. And now we see Anna, a very old, very elderly, it tells us she's 84 years old, woman. And it tells us that she's a fascinating woman. She's obviously pretty well known in the area. It says that she, she never leaves the temple. Day and night she prays and she never leaves the temple. It says that she lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. So from the time of her womanhood to the time of her, her husband's death was seven years. And she's been a widow ever since then. And she's 84 years old. So if you do an average age, let's say if the average age was somewhere in their middle teens, she easily could have been a widow here now for over 60 years. But yet she didn't get bitter. She didn't go look for another husband. It says that she has been living her life. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping, fasting, and praying night and day. What a beautiful image of the consecrated life, uh, the monastic life, if you will, monks, nuns, uh, people that are consecrated their whole life. They're married to Christ. They're married to the church. Vicki, thanks for jumping in today. And Sharon, thank you. It's good to see you. So we're talking about Anna the prophetess and her very special woman, obviously very holy, very devout. And I think showing us a beautiful symbol that, the, again, he said the gospel was for everyone. Simeon's song said the gospel was for everyone. And Anna's presence and her prophecy tells us that the gospel is to be shared by everyone, men and women. It, it, absolutely. So there's a very big role of women to be played here in the sharing of the gospel. Now, also, it tells us that Luke's very careful to tell us she's the daughter of Phanuel, and she's of the tribe of Asher. Again, Luke never puts these points in, these technical details, without having a reason behind there. Number one, it tells us that she was probably well-known in Jerusalem because of her father, Phanuel, whoever he was. But it's also interesting to know that she was of the tribe of Asher. She's not of the tribe of Judah, uh, the famous tribe of Judah. Uh, and, and you remember when Israel had the 12 tribes, that in when the 10 northern, with the separation of the kingdom, Cynthia, hi, thanks for joining. The, uh, the kingdom separated the northern 10 tribes, and there was the southern two tribes. And Asher was one of the northern 10. They've often been called the ten lost tribes of Israel because they were carried away into captivity. That was the very first uh, captivity by the Assyrians, I believe, if I got my history right there. And they were scattered. They 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 were not. Uh, they were intermixed. It was kind of a diaspora, if you will. They were they were sent out uh, to be slaves and to be conquered and to be intermarried and all kinds of things. Um, but the tribe of Judah. Now, the tribe of Judah, of course, where Jesus comes from, the Lion of Judah, was part of the southern kingdom of Judah. So northern became known as Israel, southern became known as Judah. This was during the reign of, uh, after the death of Solomon, with King Rehoboam, his son, uh, and there was the split. Why does Luke tell us that Anna is from the tribe of Asher? I mean, you don't hear the Asher very often. I think it's actually kind of over on the coastline. It's the little foot that kind of dips out on the Mediterranean coast of Israel, if I remember right. Kind of an insignificant coastal plain area. Um, I think it has a great significance because what Luke is saying here is, is no one is lost to God. Anna's, Anna has been tracking her lineage. She's proud to be from the tribe of Asher. And when everybody thought those were lost tribes, Anna knows no one is lost to God. And we're to know that no one is lost to God. And so here's this beautiful, holy woman. And it says that coming up at that very hour, she gave thanks to God. Again, led by the Spirit to be there at the right time, at the right place, at that very hour, to give thanks to God. 
And it says she spoke of him, meaning the baby Jesus, she spoke of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now that is, that's her ministry. What is it saying that Anna did? Anna went about from that moment on speaking about the Messiah, the Christ child. The Savior had come. And she said it to everyone who was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And she says the redemption of Jerusalem, not just the redemption of Israel, because this was, again, this was there was an angst because Jerusalem was God's holy city and the people were, uh, it was not the capital of anything anymore because of the Romans. Um, so there is, again, this promise of deliverance in her prophesy, prophecy. Now, it says in verse 39, when they had departed, when they had performed everything, okay, Luke's very careful, they did everything according to the law, and when they had finished the purification and the redemption of the firstborn and all those things I talked about last week, those, those ritual ceremonies, it says then they returned to Galilee at Nazareth. And we know that Matthew tells us that, of course, there was the time in Egypt, and Luke's not concerned with that part of the story because he's concerned with just focusing on the child and how he grows. So his last verse here in verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and in favor, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, he's not done yet because we're going to see the last part, and I think we've got some time here, if you can hang with me, to look at these last uh, verses 41 through 52, because Luke's connecting them as the completion of Jesus' childhood stories. And he says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. We know that there were three feasts in Israel where you had to make a pilgrimage if you possibly could. And so this was one of them. They're going uh, to be a part of the festivities. So Jesus is 12. He's been doing this 12 years in a row. He's pretty used to it by now. They're used to the caravan all the way from Nazareth with their friends to Jerusalem. They would be there in, uh, for the, the celebration of Pascha, which was the the Greek word for Passover. Um, Corbin, thanks for joining in today. And, and Dallas, thanks for being on here. So at this, <clears throat> at this Passover, we find Jesus is 12 years old. Uh, and it says they went up according to the custom. But it says when the feast was ended, as they were returning, they're getting all their stuff together. They're headed out of town. It says that the boy Jesus stayed behind. Now, Jesus wasn't lost. Jesus knew what he was doing, and he wanted to stay behind. Now, before you're too hard on Mary and Joseph about why they didn't know just where Jesus was this whole time, I mean, it's pretty crazy. Nobody had, I mean, it's a lot of people. I mean, the old city of Jerusalem with millions of people packed into this city, it would be very difficult. And Jesus is, you know, he's 12. He didn't have to be watched over like he was four or five anymore. So it was a natural thing to believe that he would just be part of the caravan. And, and so at the end of the day, it says they've traveled about a day's journey. They're worried because they, you know, I haven't seen Jesus in a while. Joseph, have you seen him? And they start asking around their kinfolk and nobody's seen Jesus. Now the panic sets in. It would set in for you and I, that's for sure. Um, I, I, I mean, we just, I can't even imagine. I, I think I've, I've been in... I can remember when our kids were little, just walking through the mall and holding their hands tightly or through a big crowd or at Disney World or wherever we were. You just always that fear of losing your child. You don't want to, to ever, ever let that happen. But, but this isn't just their little child. He's, he's almost a man now. He's 12 years old in, in their culture. So it says some, something very interesting. It says and they went, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. They figured if they were going to back their tracks up, he has to be in Jerusalem. And so they seek him. And when do they find him? Fascinating. It takes three days. Three days to find Jesus. I think there's beautiful symbolism. Why does Luke include that? Because it's a beautiful symbol. From the time, It shows us from Jesus' death to resurrection. Three days. From when Jesus seems lost to the world... And when Jesus is again seen and found by the world, three days. Beautiful, beautiful image. And so they find him at the temple. No surprise there to, to Jesus, to us. And he even says, why did you think I was lost? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? So now we see a special awareness in Jesus' humanity. He has become very strongly aware 
of his divine presence. Now, now we can never know exactly when Jesus understood exactly who he was as the God-man and all the theological significance of that. But we know that he is becoming aware because he calls this his father's house. And you know I should be here. So that, that's a pretty powerful indication that he is becoming very strongly aware of his divinity. And in that setting, he's talking with the leaders, the elders, the teachers, the rabbis. And it tells us some very important, Luke's very important uh, points that he points out. He says that, number one, he says he was sitting with them, and this is in verse 46, sitting with them and listening to them. Okay, he's not there to school them. He's not there to be insolent. He's not there to be rude. Children were not to teach adults. He's listening to them. But because he does have divine insight and he is God's son, he's asking questions. And he's te he is indeed teaching them by asking. Because then it says they were astonished <laughs> at at his, uh, they marveled. It says they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Jesus is showing a level of understanding about God and about everything way beyond what any 12-year-old would normally know. Chris, I'm glad to see you on here. Thanks for joining in. And of course, when they find him, you know, the mother Mary says, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. And Jesus says, how is it that you sought me? I mean, Mary and Joseph are no doubt relieved, but a little upset that they felt Jesus was not treating them as they should be treated as, their, as his parents. And notice that she says, your father and I, in their hearts and minds, they've been living with Jesus for 12 years. Mary and Joseph know this is the Savior of the world. They know he's the Messiah. But yet life has gone on. They've been raising a baby and then a toddler and then a young boy and, and now a teenager. And there's that identity that he's their son. And he truly is in, in a very earthly sense. Uh, Joseph's son as well. And so she refers to him as his father. And as I'm sure Jesus referred to him as his father. But in this divine understanding, he comes to say, I must be in my father's house. And it says they didn't quite understand what he was saying. They've not been even probably thinking about this Messiah thing for, it's not probably been a daily occurrence for them to think about that because of the, the routine of life and watching him grow. And I'm sure there's things pondering in their hearts all the time, but at diff different times, but but yet the, here they are, and, and it says uh, in verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. So I think this was a turning point for Mary. It certainly was for Joseph too, but we, we record it records that Mary kept these in her Now, it, remember back at the Annunciation when it says, and Mary pondered all these things in her heart? We, we know that Mary is, is, as we said last week, I think she wasn't just going around saying, hey, you know, my baby's the savior of the world. Uh, he's special. I mean, Mary was a humble servant of the Lord. And she raised Jesus like any other humble Jewish mother would. And, but yet she's pondering in her heart because this episode of finding Jesus in the temple has begun to show them, oh yeah, Jesus is really God's son. He's the divine savior of the world. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. One of these days, life will change forever. We don't know when, we don't know how, but he is destined as, she's probably at, back in the temple, she's probably remembering the words of Simeon. He's destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And then she's probably even remembering those words that said, and a sword will pierce your heart. I want to come back to that thought. Two things I want to close with you this morning. The sword, when, 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 uh, read it to you again. And a so verse 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul. To Mary, he said that. There's something written by, uh, uh I think it was the, uh, one of the, yeah, it's, it was St. Ambrose, I think. Uh, one of the great early church fathers said this, and I just want to read it to you. 
uh, real quick here on this page. St. Ambrose said this. He said, in quoting that line, and a sword will pierce through your own soul, Ambrose said, neither scripture nor history tells us that Mary departed this life by a violent death. For it is not the soul, but the body that can be pierced by a material sword. This, therefore, meaning this phrase, this prophecy, this, therefore, proves that Mary was not unaware of the heavenly mystery. And then he quotes the writer of Hebrews and says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. End quote. He quoted Hebrews there. Then Ambrose finishes by saying, God's word, capital W, okay? Jesus is God's word. God's word exposes the thoughts and intents of the heart because all things are open and naked to the eyes of Mary's son to whom the secrets of our conscience are visible. So Mary had this piercing in her heart, and we know that physically, literally, I shouldn't say physically, but literally came true as she sat below the cross and watched the agony of her son Jesus die, the most horrible death. That pierced her heart, literally, in 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 an unbelievable way. And all of her life, she's had all these memories flooding back through. So there's a very poignant prophecy to Mary of her heart being pierced. But I think it's a word to us today, too. Our hearts are pierced right now. I mentioned it earlier. Our hearts are pierced by this incredible destruction that's happening all around us. And Sharon writes, thanks for your excellent teaching style, your your manner is so comforting to the soul. Thank you, Sharon. That's kind of you to say. Um, I, I really, truly believe there's a word for us today in this scripture, in this song of Simeon. And, and it's a word of peace. And it's a word of comfort because our hearts are being pierced by what's happening to our, to innocent lives, innocent people, innocent businesses. I mean, the, the killing of innocent people on both sides of every race and every color. And, and it's all wrong. It's all sin. It's all anarchy, if you will. And, and God wants to speak into our world right now the answer. And the answer is peace, the peace of Jesus. The answer is the light that Jesus brings. And that answer, he brings that light and he brings that peace through his church. Now, I don't know if there's any pastors left on here today or if they've all stepped away uh, or if they'll listen to it later. But I, I want to say a special word to you pastors, that I, my colleagues, my dear friends that are listening and studying with me today. As you prepare to get back together from this time of quarantine, I pray that you have a new, fresh vision of who you are as a church, as the people of God. William Barclay, the great Bible commentator of the 20th century, said this. Now, this is pretty good. I, I really agree with this. He said a call coming through there I needed to silence. He said, God gave us his church to be our mother in the faith. We rob ourselves of priceless treasure when we neglect to be one with God's worshiping people. He goes on to say, public worship is great, but private worship is also great. As someone has truly said, they pray best together who pray first alone. The church is absolutely essential. The meeting together is absolutely essential to our spreading this light. We can spread the light of Jesus together when we are filled with his presence together and when that light has has been shed abroad in our hearts, our hearts have been pierced by the, the word of Jesus who is speaking to our very souls. 
And then that is poured out in love to a dying world, literally dying world around us. We are killing ourselves in this world today. We are dying because we don't know Jesus and his peace. And those of us who do, those of us who do know him and know his peace, we have a responsibility to share that light in such a way that it is so attractive that it, it just draws people in. We don't have a responsibility to preach down on those, to condemn those. We don't have that responsibility. We have the responsibility to speak the truth in love. That's what I'm trying to do in this Bible study, to speak the truth in love. Well, you've been very kind. We're up to the top of the hour. I started a couple of minutes late. Um, thank you for joining me. We just finished chapter two. Uh, so we'll begin chapter three. Luke's going to begin with the ministry of John the Baptist. And we're going to be, you know, since Jesus ended as 12 years old. So let me make a last comment for you on that last phrase of chapter two. And Jesus increased and in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The four-square life. That's the life we all should be living. We need to be increasing in wisdom. And that's what we're trying to do right here in the study. We need to be increasing in stature. That means to be physically taking care of ourselves. We need to be increasing in favor with God and with each other, with humanity. So, last word of chapter two, go live the four-square life. Um, I'm going to show you something right as we close here today. If I have it on the bookshelf, yep, I do. This little book. This book was given to me. It's called I Dare You. Okay, I Dare You, and it's written by William Danforth, a famous philanthropist of philanthropist of the 20, early 20th century, very wealthy man, Christian man. He wrote this book. It's, it, it's under private printing, still being printed by this foundation that was created in his name and his legacy. Um, this was given to me as a gift from Dr. Jim Blankenship, who was my district superintendent uh, as I pastored in San Antonio, Texas. And it was given to me in April of 2002. And it's called I Dare You. And, and it basically dares you to go live Luke 2:52, the four-square life. Go live. Go increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And, and look, so look at your. I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you all to. And, and if you ever want this book, contact me privately, and I'll tell you how you can get one. They they can still be found and purchased. Uh, a little little hard to find. Um, but but draw a. Think about all those things and draw a square, if you can, the four-square life. And what in your life is out of balance? Is your wisdom side out of balance? Is your, your physical side out of balance? Is your favor with others out of balance? Is your favor with God feel out of balance? The goal of life is to, is to be increasing in all of those. So... In the 60s, when I was growing up and they said everybody was square, that was kind of a bad thing. Oh, you're square, man. That's an old old saying, you're square. You know, that's actually a good thing. It's good to be square. You know, square, a square life, a four-fold, four-square life uh, of Jesus Christ. So I give you that as a closing. Let, let me pray for you a blessing. Thank you for joining me today in this time. Lenora, thanks for coming on here towards the end. I want to invite all of you who got in late go back and listen to this again. And those of you who will ever listen to this, thank you for listening. God bless you. Let, let me offer a blessing for you today. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone who is on this broadcast and everyone who ever will listen to it. May the thoughts of my heart and our meditations of our hearts together, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together, may they ever be pleasing to you. And Father, cover over anything that I have said or done that is not right, and let no one be led astray. But may your Holy Spirit be added to interpret these thoughts today into the hearts and lives of everyone who will hear them. May your blessing rest upon us, and may your peace come to us in this time of trouble, very great time of trouble in our world today, in our country, in our nation, in our state, in our city, in our homes. Oh God, may your peace be with us.
the peace of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit as one God, forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks. See you next week. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry, and I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as he forms his spirit within you.